As we continue our journey through the Gospel of Matthew, let me invite you to turn to that Gospel once again this morning and today to the final chapter, Matthew chapter 28, where we'll read in just a few moments, verses 1 through 17. Matthew 28, 1 through 17. When we come to this final chapter of Matthew's gospel, the Lord Jesus has yielded up his spirit and his body has been laid to rest and a large stone has been rolled against the entrance of the tomb. And at the end of chapter 27, the Jewish leaders, for fear of a body snatching and a resurrection host, have set a guard to watch over that tomb. And we pick up the events now here in verse 1, chapter 28. Now, after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, just as he said. Come. See the place where he was lying. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. Now while they were on their way, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, You are to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money and did as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some were doubtful. Father, may it be today that as we see Jesus in this, your word, we would worship him. And that by the time we would finish today, that any who are doubtful would be doubtful no more, but believing. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Now, let's take notice today of four things in this passage in regard to the resurrection of our Lord. It's a wonderful truth. We said last week that 
in coming to the cross, we were at the epicenter of God's plan for the ages and therefore at the epicenter of all history. And the cross and the resurrection, of course, go together. And so we are still at the very center, at the very apex of history here. And we want to consider what Matthew has to tell us about this most important, most grand, most remarkable event. And we'll notice four things about it today. First of all, we need to notice in this passage the fact of the resurrection. Quite straightforwardly, we need to see here the fact of the resurrection, that the resurrection is fact. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? Is he really alive? Well, notice three forms of evidence here in this passage. First, as exhibit A, we have the testimony of an angel. Do not Be afraid, verse 5, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. And who said that to these two women? Not some bystander in the garden. Not the gardener. Not any mere mortal. The one who told them that Jesus was alive was one whose appearance, verse 3, was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. The one who told them that Jesus had risen is one in whose presence, verse 4, the guard shook for fear and became like dead men. The one who announced the resurrection was an angel of the Lord, verse 2, who had descended from heaven. And I tell you that when an angel descends from heaven and shows up and announces a message, we kind of ought to take his word seriously, right? When an angel of the Lord descends from heaven and says that Jesus has risen just as he said, such a proclamation is to be believed, is to be taken as fact. So here's exhibit A. We have the testimony of an angel. Jesus is not here, for he has risen. But now, while we are told here that this was an angel of the Lord in verse 2, yet what if Mary and Mary were unsure of his identity? After all, Paul tells us that even... Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. And so what if these women here are unsure of this messenger's identity? Or what if they don't question his identity and yet they're still having trouble believing his report? Jesus is risen? Are you sure? Well, let's move to exhibit B. First, we have the testimony of an angel. And now, secondly, we should consider the empty tomb. Verse 6, he is not here, for he has risen just as he said. Come, see the place where he was lying. He was lying there, but he's not lying there anymore. And I want you to come and see this place. And the implication, of course, is that they did go and see the place where he was lying. And that he was not there, that the tomb was empty. But how did it become empty? 
These two women, up in chapter 27, verses 59, 60, and 61, these two women had seen the body placed in the tomb, and they had seen the stone rolled against the entrance. And beginning the next day, verses 62 through 66, the tomb had been guarded by soldiers. And so how is it that the body which they saw go into the tomb and the tomb which they saw closed and the tomb which has been guarded by soldiers since the day after the burial, how is it that the body is now gone? Well, either some shenanigans went on between the closing of the tomb in chapter 27, verse 60, and the setting of the guard on the next day, or this fellow in white is telling them the truth. So let's bring in Exhibit C now, which will cinch the case. And Exhibit C is a list of 13 eyewitnesses. Maybe we could think of it as Exhibit C1, C2, C3, all the way through C13. 13 eyewitnesses we're told about in this passage. First, these two women themselves in verses 8 and 9, they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. They saw the risen Christ and they even touched the risen Christ in verse 9. And then we have 11 more eyewitnesses down in verses 16 and 17. The 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some were doubtful. When they saw him, you see, 11 more eyewitnesses. Now, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that there were more than 500 eyewitnesses, but even these 13 here in Matthew 28 are a substantial number, right? That's a good number of witnesses to have on your side if you're trying to win a case. So we're considering here the fact of the resurrection, and we have as Exhibit A the testimony of an angel come down from heaven. We have as Exhibit B the empty tomb, how did it get empty? And we have as Exhibit C, 13 eyewitnesses. And fitting those things together, they make the case, don't they? Amen. Especially Exhibits B and C, it seems to me. If we just had Exhibits A and C, if we just had the testimony of the angel and the testimony of the 13, we would probably be still wanting to go to the tomb and get someone to roll the stone away and make sure that there's no body in there. Make sure that this is no hoax. But with the fact that the tomb is empty, it all fits, doesn't it? Or if we just had Exhibits A and B, if we just had the angel and the empty tomb, we might be tempted to doubt the angel's words. Not saying we should, but we might be tempted to doubt the angel's words and to wonder about, well, what might have happened in that gap between the closing of the grave in 2760 and the setting of the guard in verse 66? Was there a body snatching? How do we know? But you see, the eyewitnesses make such doubts moot. And so what I'm arguing is that Matthew presents us here with an airtight case. 
These three exhibits demonstrate Christ's resurrection to be fact. And that's important. For if this is not fact, if Christ has not been raised, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. If we don't have fact here, if Christ has not been raised here, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins, and so am I. But... If Christ has been raised, raised, then we can say with Paul that Jesus was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. If Christ has been raised, if this is fact, then it is also fact that Jesus really is the Son of God. And if Christ has been raised, then we who are born again can also say with Paul that God made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places, Ephesians 2. And if Christ has been raised, we can say with Paul that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life, Romans 6. And if Christ has been raised, then we can affirm that we will rise bodily someday too. 1 Corinthians 15, 20. Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. And so you see, for our very salvation, the fact of the resurrection is vital. It is vital that Christ didn't just somehow rise in the sense that the apostles never would forget his memory and would always talk about him and remember him. It's vital that it wasn't a hoax either. It's vital that Christ really, truly, bodily rose from the dead. And Matthew shows us that he did. So that's the first thing today, the fact of the resurrection. And I hope you take that fact to heart and let it gladden and cheer your soul. But now secondly, let's briefly notice not only the fact of the resurrection, but the prophecy of the resurrection in this passage. The prophecy of the resurrection. Verses 5 and 6, the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen just as he said. Jesus had prophesied the resurrection, and now it has come to pass just as he said. Just as he said in Matthew 16, 21, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. He has risen, just as he said in chapter 17, verses 22 and 23. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. He has risen, just as he said in chapter 20, verses 18 and 19. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him, and on the third day he will be raised up. 
He has risen, just as he said in chapter 26, verses 31 and 32. You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Just as he said. Because... As we've been saying in these recent sermons from this book of Matthew, the word of the Lord is sure. And Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is very God, a very God. And so what he says will surely come to pass. He has risen just as he said. And so I urge you once again today to take comfort in the fact that God's word is sure. You can take this book and its promises, and its prophecies to the bank. You can be certain of all that it says. Jesus will be with us as we spread the gospel, just as he said at the end of this chapter. God will never desert his people, nor will he ever forsake them, just as he said. Jesus is coming again, Just as he said, the dead in Christ will rise just as God said. And on we could go talking about the certainty of God's word. And I hope we believe it. And I hope we bank on it. So then, number one, the fact of the resurrection. Number two, the prophecy of the resurrection, which exhibits for us, once again, the certainty of God's word. And then thirdly... Briefly again, the timing of the resurrection. We should note here the timing of the resurrection. Now after the Sabbath, verse 1, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. It was on the first day of the week that they came to the grave. It was on the first day of the week, on Sunday, that Christ rose from the dead. And soon his followers began meeting on the first day of the week, Acts 20, verse 7, and 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2, and began calling the first day of the week the Lord's day, Revelation 1.10. And so if you've ever wondered why, why do we Christians meet on Sunday? And why do we take our Sabbath rest on Sunday? It's because Jesus rose on Sunday. He rose on the first day of the week. We worship on Sunday. We rest on Sunday because of the timing of Christ's resurrection. That's how important the resurrection is. It led the early church, under God's guidance, no doubt, to observe the Lord's Day on Sunday now instead of the Old Testament Saturday. It marked the way the Christians viewed their entire lives and viewed their calendars and their week and their worship. And that means that we don't just have a Resurrection Sunday every year in the spring, but that every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. Every Sunday we meet to worship the risen Christ. The timing of the resurrection is important. So the fact of the resurrection, the prophecy of the resurrection, the timing of the resurrection, and now, fourthly, 
we should see and take note of in this passage the reactions to the resurrection. The reactions to the resurrection here in these 17 verses. There is, of course, the reaction of cover-up in verses 11 through 15 as the chief priests pay off the soldiers to say that the disciples stole Jesus' body. And that's a sad reaction because although these priests didn't have all the evidence to which the women were privy, they did have the soldiers reporting to them in verse 11 what we called exhibits A and B. In other words, though these priests did not, like these two women, see Jesus with their own eyes, yet they did have credible witnesses in verse 11 to the appearance of the angel and to the emptiness of the tomb. And the priests believed at least the part about the empty tomb because they paid the soldiers here in verses 12 and 13 to come up with an alternate or to give out an alternate explanation for it. So they believed that the tomb was empty. They had enough evidence, in other words, to at least have said to themselves, you know, much as we haven't wanted to credit this Jesus, maybe we had better investigate here. Maybe we had better look into this resurrection claim. They had enough evidence to at least do that. But instead of investigating, they start a cover-up plan because they don't want to believe. And they don't want others to believe either. And I say to you that they're sad, and I warn you not to be like them. The question is not whether you want to believe. The question is whether the resurrection is fact or not. And woe to us who cover up the facts about Christ, either from others like these men did, or even from ourselves by just closing our ears and our minds and saying, I don't want to think about this. I don't want to consider this. Don't be like these priests, I tell you, who did not want to believe. Consider the facts. That's one reaction to the resurrection, the cover-up. But there are a couple of more reactions up in verse 8 from these two women, Mary and Mary. The first is fear. Fear. They left the tomb, verse 8, quickly with fear. Now that's interesting, isn't it? The resurrection is supposed to be good news, right? Something we would celebrate, right? And so why are these women afraid? Well, I'm not positive of the answer to that, but perhaps in light of the evidence for the resurrection, they are feeling the weight of something like, who really have we been dealing with here? This is all the more weighty, this, this following Jesus and this Jesus himself, this is all the more weighty than we even realized. We really have been traveling around the countryside with the very Son of God. Not that they didn't believe that before, but perhaps now it really hits them that they have been walking in the presence of the Holy One, and that rattles them to realize that even more fully now, as well it should. Maybe it's something like you standing out on your porch 
watching an electrical storm and you see the lightning and you hear the thunder off in the distance and it's beautiful and it's powerful and it's majestic and you know that lightning is serious business but you're standing there casually watching it off in the distance when suddenly a bolt strikes the ground just on the other side of your yard and now you really get it don't you And now you're rightly unnerved a little bit, and hopefully you go back inside from the porch into the house. And it would be good, and it would be healthy if God gave us such encounters with the truth about Christ. If sometimes we sat in these pews or in front of our Bibles, and like these two Marys, found ourselves a little rattled, realizing just how great this Jesus is in whose presence we gather week to week. There is a right fear here in response to the resurrection which declares Jesus to be God's Son. And then there's another healthy reaction in verse 8. They left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy. Joy. Our Jesus is not dead, but alive. Death is swallowed up in victory. He really is the Son of God, which, yes, is unnerving in some ways, but it's also wonderful. Joy ought to be our reaction, right? We ought to sing with Charles Wesley, Christ the Lord is risen today. Alleluia. Sons of men and angels say, Alleluia. Raise your joys and triumphs high. Alleluia. Sing ye heavens and earth reply. Alleluia. Christ the Lord is risen today. These women had great joy in Christ's resurrection, and I hope you do as well. And then finally, as we consider the reactions to the resurrection here in verses 1 through 17, note two reactions among the 11 disciples in verse 17, one of which is also shared by the women earlier in the chapter. First, notice the reaction, the response of worship in verse 17. When they saw him, they worshipped him. The women did the same thing in verse 9. They came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And if they took a hold of his feet in their worship, it means they were bowed down, likely, on the ground. And see, here's the thing. If Jesus is risen and thereby declared the Son of God with power, then we ought to fall down before him, right? In adoration, in reverence, in awe, in thanksgiving, in praise, in the right sort of fear. In short, we ought to fall before him in worship. We ought not to just say the words of our songs, but say them with full hearts. We ought to find ourselves very often hushed in Christ's presence and bowing our hearts and even our bodies in worship. Our prayers to him ought not to be rote, but rather rife with words and tones of adoration and reverence and awe. When they saw him, they worshipped him. Worship the risen Christ. 
When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some were doubtful. Some were doubtful. This is the final reaction. Perhaps these doubtful ones thought, as in Luke 24, that they were seeing a spirit and not really Jesus himself. Some were doubtful. And I say to you, if, if even the eleven could doubt, given the fact that Jesus is standing before them and that they have walked with him, if even the eleven could doubt, perhaps some of us struggle with doubts too. It may be that you doubt, like them, whether Jesus really is risen. It seems just so uh, incredible, and I mean incredible that it doesn't seem credible that Jesus could really be risen. We, we just don't have a category for that in our day-to-day experience, do we? Or maybe you might struggle with doubt of Jesus' claims in general, really wondering, was he just a great teacher? I mean, I think most people can agree that he's a great teacher, but is that all he was? Or, or should we really believe that he's risen and that he's the Son of God and that he really did die for the reason that the Bible says he died? And so on. Some were doubtful. And if you're doubtful, for either, in either case today, if you're doubtful about the resurrection because it just seems beyond the pale, or if you're doubtful today of, of the whole teaching of the Bible about Jesus and just wondering, could he really be all that the Bible says that he is? In either case, if you are doubtful today, I refer you back to the evidence of Christ's resurrection. I refer you back to that angel come down from heaven and saying, He has risen. I refer you back to the fact that the tomb was empty. I refer you back to the fact that there were 13 eyewitnesses in this chapter alone. And not only these, but more than 500 eyewitnesses, says Paul in 1 Corinthians 15.6. I also refer you to these Jewish leaders in this chapter who desperately wanted the resurrection not to be true, but who couldn't produce a body or any other evidence, but were left to resort to a cover-up and a scam and a payoff. What does that tell you about the resurrection? If they could have disproven it, they would have, but they couldn't. All the evidence, I say to you, says that Christ is alive, that Jesus has risen. And if risen, then he is declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. And so I urge you today, in light of these things, do not be unbelieving, but believing.